my heart is, is heavy this morning. When will it end? When will it end the, the oppression? When will it end the addiction? When will it end the lies? When will it end the, the disunity? When will it end the cheating? When will it end the terrorism? When will it end the hunger? When will it end the hate? When will it end the natural disaster? When will it end the pride? When will it end the sickness? When will it end the depression, the anxiety? When will it end the betrayal? How long? How long? Why? These are questions that that all of us are wrestling with. How long? My heart is heavy. Why is it even happening? How long will we have to go through these things and why do they even occur? And and certainly over the last several years, we've had a stark reminder, even this last week, of these things just weighing heavy on our hearts. Things are not as they should be with us inwardly. Things are not as they should be outwardly as we look at the world with natural disasters and terrorism and all of these other things that we face, a pandemic right before us. And certainly over the last couple of years, we've had racial tensions that have been high. We've questioned the trust of authority, and that has been high, which, by the way, we talked about this last week, but when you muddy truth, and when truth is no more, then trust will follow. Where there is no truth, there will be no trust. Do we trust anything today? It's because there's no truth being told today. Those things have been high. We've been reminded even this week of of COVID and the tensions for that are high. There's unrest around the world. There are natural disasters. And and let me just say, it's weighed heavily on me this week with many different conversations about COVID, the pandemic, and everything that's happening, and just the fact that it's ramping back up and not winding down. And, And so I do want to commend our church and just In an open and honest moment, I feel like you have handled it with such grace and love. And so I want to commend you for that. I want to thank you for that. I know that there are a lot of different opinions, or really just two, but we hold them very, very tightly. (laughs) And, And things have gotten a lot worse because before we were all kind of together, there weren't many answers, and so we were all trying to figure it out. And lately, as things have gotten worse and COVID isn't going away, now we all feel like we have things figured out. And so tension is on the rise. And today, listen to me, uh, I just want to give us a word of encouragement, a word of challenge, a word of love on this, because today the enemy is hard at work in the church to cause division. Hard at work. And, and I feel like this has to be acknowledged because I'm seeing on the horizon a civil war between God's people. And it has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with, with a, a theology that we are to believe. And it breaks my heart that over these last 18 months or so, it seems that the church, listen to me, 
I'm not blaming. I've just commended you for how well that you have done, but I do want to challenge us. I do want us to think about this. It seems to me that the church in many ways, the church as a whole in our country has been, had more passion and more vigor over things that, that, that are not of the gospel truth than I have seen in a very long time of a passion and a vigor that we have for Christ. We, we continually have seen deeper convictions over medical practice than love and godliness. So, so let's not forget, okay, let's not forget that love must be done in the right way for it to be loving. And we are never to be more willing to divide over worldly issues than we are passionate about uniting about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church has an opportunity. We have had an opportunity. The opportunity continues for us to reveal love, for us to reveal grace, for us to reveal compassion on a broken and hurting world. And we are the people of God. We are not the people of the world. If our faith is in Christ, then we are his people, and we have a mission that is far greater than anything and any mission that is in the world, and it is to primarily reveal him and his love and his grace. Now, I I know that there are real issues. I know that there are things that we really do need to contemplate. We need to think. We need to investigate. We need to pray for one another. We need to come to conclusions. We need to make decisions. We need to do what is best for our families and for ourselves. But we need to hold all of those decisions with humble hearts. I say this because I love you and, and I do see a potential storm. And I don't want it to infiltrate our body here. So so just let me challenge you that everything that you post, everything that you say, is done first through a gospel lens. How will this make God look? How will this make my Savior look? How will this make the Spirit working in me appear? That is what is most important in this time. Let love lead us. And and I say it again because I do love you and we take God's word very seriously. We do believe that it should be the lens in which we see, determine, and present all other truth. And we want to love one another well. And we want to talk about these things in the way that we should. And And we want to talk about truth, hence the reason that we're going through the book of Habakkuk. We're not afraid to talk about hard things. And I know that a hard thing, and I know that tensions are high. And again, I want to commend you, but I also want to challenge us as we move forward. And all of that, and, and everything that I mentioned above, makes me more than anything right now feel how long? Like, God, would you just return? Like, what is taking so long? Why are these things happening? It just kind of, when you look at the world today, does it not just make you want to scream at times? It's almost like you have to do that, or you just have to totally try to ignore everything that is happening. And all of us naturally struggle with these things. We wonder why. We wonder how long this is going to happen. There is real pain, and there's real suffering. There's real evil. It does exist. 
And the debate is so heated today on many of these things because we think it's not right. This is not the way that it should be. And we want to pursue changing it. We want to pursue redeeming it. We want to pursue both inwardly in our own selves and outwardly in everything that we see to make things right. Habakkuk dealt with these issues. So take your Bible and turn to the book of Habakkuk. You might not be able to find it. That's okay. Uh, Use the table of contents. It's towards the back end of the Old Testament. We're going to look at chapter 1 and a couple of things that we're going to point out. We can't exhaustively look at these verses this morning because we have some history that we need to understand to understand what Habakkuk is really going through and what God is really saying. But there are a couple of things, this question of how long and this question of why that Habakkuk asks. And I want us to see that this morning. So go ahead and turn there. And we'll walk through these things. I'm going to pray for us while you turn there. God, thank you so much for your word. And God, thank you for the ability that we have to gather together and to worship you. I pray that that would never be lost on us. And if anything, over the last 18 months, God, I pray that this time has become more precious to us as we realize that it can be taken away. And so, God, as we come together and we worship you, I pray that you would speak to us. We desperately need to hear from you. There are real issues, and there are real things that we need to lean into. There's real truth that we need to understand. There's real, there's real things that we need to trust. And so, God, as, as we open your word, would you speak to us this morning, wherever we are, I pray that your word would be what we hear. I pray that your spirit would fill us and speak to us. And God, we do lift up the church of our city as as the church is struggling in many ways. And I pray, God, that we would be a people, no matter what we go through, that reveal that there is something greater in you than anything that we might go through in the world. Would you use this time to reveal that your gospel is best, that you are to be put uh, all of our faith in, that you are the one that we can trust over all other things, that you are where our joy and satisfaction are and not in the circumstances of the world. And God, would, would you be with those in Afghanistan? Would you be with those in Haiti? Would you be with us as we make difficult decisions in our families and our schools? Would you be with teachers this year as they struggle with how to go through this new time of life, God? And would you just be with us this morning? Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get into the book of Habakkuk, the, the year is right around 610 B.C., And we don't know much about Habakkuk at all. In fact, we don't even know how to say his name. And you might have struggled with that as you looked at that and you tried to read that name. I've talked to, I've had probably a handful of people this week um, call me or text me, say they're excited for this. And if they've called me, they've tried to say the name. And it's been comical. Um, But the truth is, you can say it in any way you want to because it's an Akkadian borrowed loan word. It doesn't exist anymore in spoken language. And so we have no idea how to say it. Habakkuk sounds the best to me, so that's what I use. But if you want to say something different, that's totally fine. Just don't let anybody tell you that they have it right. Because if they do, they know less than they think they do. We don't know much about him, but we do know that he was a prophet in the Old Testament. 
And in the Old Testament, you had kings in the people of God, and they would rule over the people. They were to point to God and lead the people in worship of God. And then you had priests, and they were to guide spiritually the Israelite people, the people of God. And then you had prophets. And prophets would kind of appear out of the woods somewhere, and they would say really weird and hard to understand things when the people of God weren't living in the covenant that God had with them. God continually gave warnings to his people because his people, the Israelites, were chosen by him to reveal to the rest of the nations in a broken world that were worshiping other gods and seeking other satisfactions and putting their faith and trust in other things, what it was like to worship the one true God. They were to reveal God and his kingdom and his glory. And they continually struggled with that. And so God continued to to, uh, warn them of what would happen and what he would need to do with them to fulfill his plan if they did not do what he had called them to do. And they continue to fall away. And then he continues to send prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, to call them to repentance, to call them back to what they were uh, created to do, what they're called to do. And so they would kind of just come out of nowhere. They would, they would say things like repent and follow God, remember the covenant of God. They would warn of the things that were going to come if they did not do that. And time and time again, prophets would be sent to the people of God. God was so patient. When you read the Old Testament, and we'll talk a little bit about wrath in a few moments, but when you read the Old Testament, we usually see the wrath of God. But what we need to see is the patience of God. There is justice But his grace is so magnificent. His patience with them is unbelievable. His patience with us is unbelievable. And and so here, Habakkuk, he faces a similar situation as we do today. I think this is so applicable to us. Because though times have changed, the hearts of men and women have not. We struggle with the same things. We, We deal with the same issues and we have the same truths we need to turn to. And so without taking too much time this morning, we do need to know, all right, so let's go all the way back to the beginning. I'm going to fly through it really quickly, but we do need to know a couple of things. Most of us will understand this first part and because we've heard this so many times before, even if you have not grown up in church. The Bible begins with God who is complete and completely good. That's where scripture begins. He has all things within himself. He needs nothing to be complete, to understand love, to understand relationship, to understand community, to understand perfection. He he needs nothing. He is all of those things within himself. He is complete and he is good, which is why foundationally we can actually be saved by grace. But he is all within himself. He is complete within himself. He creates humanity then for his glory, and he creates us in his image. And so there's a a image in us of God. There's a goodness in us of God. There's a a morality or a moral code, if you will, in us because we were created in the image of the one who is good, of the one who is complete. Therefore, in all of our lives, this is why we cry out, how long? Why? Because in all of our lives, whether we know it or not, we were created to give him glory and we desire for his glory to be known. That's what morality is. 
It is pointing to the good. It's pointing to God. It's pointing to what is complete. And every time we want something to be right or to be redeemed or notice that it is wrong, it is reflecting the image of God in us. It's reflecting the reality that we were created to have communion with him. And in community with him, we desire to give him glory in all things. So we desire good. We desire justice. We desire what is pure and what is holy. It's why we ask these questions that we began our time with together. And in the beginning, we naturally glorified him when we were created in his image. We had perfect community with him. And therefore, we related to each other in the way that we were created to perfectly. And therefore, we also related to the creation in the way that we were created to. And creation related to God in the way that it was created to. Everything was rightly related to God and giving him glory in everything. So there was no evil, there was no suffering, there was no pain. But as we know, in pride, the enemy comes in, Satan comes, and in pride, he tempts the pride of man, of humanity, to break the one rule. And this is important, too. A lot of times when we think about Christianity, we think of all the rules and all the things we have to do. And that's because we don't have an understanding of the gospel. But in the beginning, when we were created to have community with God in his image, there was one rule. It was don't eat of the fruit of the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was to remind us of our dependency on God. The one thing that you cannot do is be like me. You're to, you're to give me glory. You, to, you are to appreciate me. You are to have joy in me, satisfaction in me, and that is what you were created to have. And so, so do not do that. It would take that away. You would rebel. And the temptation in pride was to say, because there is a God, I don't need to worship him, but I need to be like him. Maybe I can be him. Maybe he is keeping something from me. That was the temptation. And so the first man and woman fell into that temptation of pride, desiring to be their own gods. And immediately, all things shifted. They, their sin separated them from a God who was pure and holy and perfect. Justice now demanded that they not be in perfect community with him any longer. Love demanded that they not be in perfect community with him any longer. And suddenly, though they were naked and unashamed, they were completely known and completely loved. Now they find themselves naked and ashamed of all that they have done. They immediately begin blaming. They immediately have greed and lust and envy and war. It doesn't take very long for the first murder to occur because now there's a discontentment and need in humanity's heart. I don't have what I was created for. I'm discontent. I need something I don't have, so I've got to pursue it. I've got to gain it. I've got to use to get it. And God did not immediately in his grace just destroy all that he had created, though that would have been just. But in his grace, he makes a promise that he will send a savior. He makes a promise that he will bring us back into community with him. But in sin, we were affected. All of the earth was affected as well. We get natural disasters. We have an environmental brokenness. Our bodies are broken. We have sickness. But see, this is where evil and suffering originate. And as I said, though God in his grace did not destroy humanity and his holiness and justice 
for the love of what is good, man was separated from him. Now he displays grace. He gives us life. He still allows in the Old Testament humanity to know him. He, he chooses a people that the Messiah will come from. His grace upon grace upon grace is displayed all throughout the Old Testament. But we're continually reminded that every step that we take away or from God is a step that we will regret. It's a step in the direction that we do not desire to be and we were not created to live in. And because of this sin entering into the world, best I can tell through the reading of Scripture, there are nine different types of suffering today. Nine different types of suffering. Let me quickly go through these. There's Adamic suffering. This is suffering brought on by the fact that we are human and Adam, the first man, sinned against God. And so we suffer because we are born into sin and into a sinful world. There's demonic suffering. This is spiritual warfare. There's victim suffering. You, you did nothing, but something was done to you. There's collective suffering. This would be a good example. Uh, a good example of that would be like 9-11, where something happens and collectively as a people, we suffer over it together. There's disciplinary suffering. It's, it's a correction from God. It's him calling us back. It's him pointing to the fact that we need to depend on him and find life in him. That's what we see in Habakkuk chapter 1. There's persecution suffering. We suffer because we love Jesus and people oppose him. I've known many in, in my life and in, on the mission field who have, have experienced extreme suffering of this type. There's empathetic suffering. You suffer because you love someone who is suffering. There's consequential suffering. You have done certain things and now certain things follow. And there's chosen suffering. Chosen suffering is that you choose to sacrifice for something or for someone that causes suffering in your life. And all of these, listen to me, all of these are a testimonial suffering. They reveal something of who we are and what we put our faith in and what we find life in and what we trust for, for joy and satisfaction and contentment, what we pursue to make all things right or salvation or redemption. They all give testimony in the way that we go through them, and all of these, depending on how we handle them and where we turn, will lead us deeper into suffering and away from a satisfaction and joy that comes in the Lord alone or out of the suffering of the world as we experience them when we don't understand Christ. We don't place our faith and trust in him. And Habakkuk, in his time, he is certainly going through all of these things. And the backstory here is that God had made a promise to send the Messiah. As we said, he made a covenant with his people, the Israelites, that the Messiah would come, that he would bring salvation to those who had placed their faith in him, that all would be made right in the end. That one day Jesus will return and all things will be made new and all suffering and all evil and all tears will be wiped away. That justice will be known. He makes this promise, but as I said, the people continually fall away from him. They don't reveal who they are in him. And though God is extremely patient, he does send these prophets to warn them to repent and typically, you would get one prophet, but in Habakkuk's time, there's four prophets that are coming to the Israelite people. If you get one prophet, you better repent. If you get four, something's really going on. 
And so we have Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Nahum, and Zephaniah, all to the Israelite people in this time. And, and the backstory is that the Israelites have had a series of bad kings who have made bad decisions. They've worshipped the bad, wrong things, and they've led the people in this direction. The kingdom has actually been split. The Israelite kingdom, the Israelite people have been split into two kingdoms, the north and the south. You had Israel to the north, and you have Judah to the south. Now, Israel had just gone off the rails earlier, and even though Judah had been doing things and worshiping gods that they should not have been worshiping, the, the, uh, Israel was actually taken into captivity before Judah, but Judah is quickly following. They had a king, King Manasseh. You can read about him in all of this in second, the book of 2 Kings. He actually introduces Canaanite and Assyrian gods into the faith and into Judean worship. This included child sacrifice to the Ammonite god of Moloch. And, and King Manasseh actually sacrificed one of his sons to King Moloch. He died in 641 B.C., Amon took over. He rules for just a couple of years, but he was no better religiously or politically for the people in pointing them to God. And I think what makes it even more frustrating, as we'll see for Habakkuk, is that there was a glimmer, there was a hope, because after these kings, you had King Josiah. He passed away just a couple of years before Habakkuk is writing this book. And it seemed that during Josiah's reign, everything was, was kind of trending in the right direction. The people were worshiping God. Josiah took over as king when he was eight years old. Now, just let that sink in. That is absolutely insane. I have an eight-year-old, and if she were to rule this country, it would be the most loving and compassionate country for like two days, and then we would be no more, Right? So he takes over when he is eight years old. He has some good advisors, though. There's a high priest there that is good. And during that time, Jeremiah is calling the people to repentance, and Josiah decides he's going to listen. He's going to clean everything up. He's going to clean up the temple. He's going to call the people back to God. And so they're, they're cleaning up the temple, and they find a scroll, the high priest and Josiah. And they, they unroll the scroll, and it, and it ends up being the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they read it together, and Scripture says that they read it, and they begin to weep. This is how far they had gone from God. They find a book, and they think to themselves, what is this? This is the people of God who have no idea what Scripture is who have no idea what God has said to them, and they find it, and they read the law, and they read the promises of the Messiah. They read what the Israelite people are called to do. They understand their identity, and it's rediscovered. Their passion for God is rediscovered. Truth is beginning to be taught and sought by the Israelite people. But it's unbelievable to me that they, they find the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they begin to read, and they are so drawn in by the truth of God's word that they had for so long walked away from that they begin to weep and understand who they actually are. Man, may the church of our nation rediscover the word of God. May we hear its words. May we see our identity. May we see the promises of Jesus. May we see his death and resurrection. May we see his mission. May we see that he's coming again. And may we weep and may we repent and may, may we follow him. 
May we be called back to him. I have this prayer deep in my heart that this would be true of us. But here's the thing. Josiah calls all the people of Israel together. He, they read the book and, and all the people begin to weep and all the people begin to repent. They come back to God. But then no sooner than these things begin to turn around, disaster hits. How long? Like, why? As soon as all of this happens, Josiah dies in the battle of Megiddo with the Egyptians. And you can read all about that. It's a really interesting story. His son then, Jeroboam, becomes king. That doesn't last very long. And Jehoiakim becomes king. And Judah quickly becomes, over a couple of years, to just be run into the ground spiritually. And now Habakkuk is talking to God, and this is the backdrop. God, I remember when we loved you. I remember when, when, we, when we had you, and now we've lost you. I, I remember when things were good, and now they're, they're bad. I remember when your hand was visible, and now it's invisible, and, and he's frustrated. This is how he's going to God. He's absolutely frustrated with what is happening. He sees the suffering. He sees the rebellion. He sees the evil, the trials. And he knows the trials are from what we just talked about. He knows that it's because suffering in the world is a byproduct of sin. But he sees the rebellion, and that's why he goes to God. But he sees it all, and he's frustrated with God because he's going, God, this isn't how I would do it. Like, I know that you're God, and I know that you're good, and I've seen your goodness, but, but what is happening? How long will you allow your people to walk away from you? Why would you allow them to walk away from you? And Habakkuk is a really interesting and unique prophet, because instead of speaking to the people of God on behalf of God, he speaks to God on behalf of the people. We get a prayer. Basically, we get his journal. These are thoughts between him and God, and God allows us to see this. And I don't have time to, to lean into this this morning, but I would just encourage you, anytime we see journaling in Scripture, I always want to encourage you to journal your thoughts to God, your, your major prayers. You don't have to write it all out, but just things that, that you want to, you're asking him for, that you're seeking him for. Because we are such as a people prone to look at what is right in front of us and always move forward to what is next. And listen, many of us are constantly frustrated with God as Habakkuk is. We're struggling with doubt towards God because we're always waiting for him to do what is next and we're never realizing all that he has done in the past, all that he is doing in the present, and, and that allows us to trust and, and, and know that he will be faithful in the future. It, to journal and to write things down allows us to see what God is doing and it helps us worship not our circumstances and be frustrated but to worship God who's in control of all of our circumstances. So, so listen, to journal will help your joy. It will cut down on your frustration. It will give you something to be thankful for, to rejoice over with others. You will not be someone who is defined by grumbling and negativity. It helps us focus on truth, not feeling, and it helps guide our feelings into truth. So try it out. That's a freebie. And what we see here is that Habakkuk is a man that does know God. He does love God. He wants to be faithful to God, but he's running to God and he's going, I don't understand. And I'm frustrated. And what we see in this book is that he goes to God twice and God answers him twice. 
Man, the grace of God to answer someone who is completely frustrated with him without reason. And he kind of opens the curtain and lets Habakkuk see a little bit of his ultimate plan that's way better than Habakkuk's five-year plan. But he's going to let him see a few things. And then in chapter 3, what we see is Habakkuk essentially begins to worship God. He grabs a guitar and he starts singing a worship song about how he trusts God. I understand a few things of what I don't understand. And so I understand that my faith and my trust needs to be in him. And that's my prayer for each of us as we build on this book over the next four weeks. So quickly with me, look what he says. There's just a couple of things we need to pull out of this with this understanding and this backstory. In the first verse, he says, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And oracle is like a vision. It it literally means burden. So he has this vision from God that puts a burden on him. And and it's not when you get a vision from God or an understanding from God or God speaks to you that you have this burden that weighs you down or oppresses you. A vision or a burden from God is like a fire in you that has to get out. It's something that you're passionate about. This is what the gospel does to us. When we understand grace and the gospel, there's a burden on us. There's a passion in us. There's a fire that needs to get out. This is what the mission of God is given for, that we are to go out and make disciples of all nations. It's the burden. It's the fire. Habakkuk has that given to him by God. And then a lot of times when we see kind of books of the Bible begin, even when we see like letters from Paul, which we just went through in the book of Philippians, we see the letter kind of starts with, with an intro, not Habakkuk. When we see Paul, he's always kind of like, even when he has to say hard things, he's like, hey, Apostle Paul here. Like, I love you guys. I've got a couple of encouraging things, a couple of hard things. I wrote a couple of prayers for you. I put a couple of hymns in here that you're familiar with. And I really care for you guys. Here we go. That's how Paul generally starts his letters. That's not what Habakkuk does. He doesn't give any introduction at all. That's why we have to see all of these things before we get to the book so we know what's going on at all. He's just distraught. So maybe you're like this sometimes in your life. When you go to God, you go to God and sometimes you pray, Dear God, thank you so much for all that you are and all that you are doing and all that you have done. And you, can, and you really kind of have this introduction to your request. And then sometimes you just go to God in being distraught. You see everything that's happening in your life and everything around you. And your first thing that you say to God, the first thing that comes out of your mouth, like Habakkuk, is just, ah, ah, what is happening? Like, what is going on? I don't understand. And all he can get out is just, ah. And that can happen in two different ways. It can happen in an ungodly way and a godly way. There are two ways that that can be ungodly. And what I think we see here is an example to us of a godly way to go to God and who to trust and where to put our faith when things are very difficult and we have zero understanding. But there are two ways to do that in an ungodly way. It happens in an ungodly way when we're going to God with this, ah, look at everything. I don't understand. You must not be good. You must not even be there. I I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're doing. I don't think I can trust you. So so maybe you, you don't even exist. That's the first ungodly way that will not lead you to where you need to trust and put your faith. The second is just to 
ignore everything around you that's going on to just drown yourself in social media and drown yourself in Netflix and all the entertainments of the world so that you never have to think about the fact that there is injustice. That's an ungodly thing because we are called as the people of God to bring justice where there's injustice, to bring redemption in the gospel where the gospel is not known. So we should be a people who see what's happening because of sin and brokenness and go, ah, I've got to do something. And if I was in control, this is what I would do. And God, I don't know what you're doing, so I'm coming to you with my frustration. But like Habakkuk, I'm seeking you because you're the only one that has answers. So I'm frustrated, but I have nowhere else to go. You are true. You are God. You've revealed yourself in the past. You have saved me out of darkness. And I want righteousness, and I want justice, and I want good And I want salvation and I want redemption and all this chaos. God, I know that you're good. And I want your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I want lostness to decrease. I want sorrows to be turned into joy. I want a greater good to live for in our our world than our circumstances. But I want the great God that you are to restore our circumstances. See, this is a righteous angst from, from Habakkuk. He sees the world is celebrating things that they should be mourning. And he goes to God to say, why are you intervening? You're the only one that can do anything. Where are you? And that's Habakkuk's, ah! Oh Lord, how long I cry for help and you will not hear. Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Have you ever gone to God like this? Has the world frustrated you where you've just gone to God and you don't know what to say but to complain, but you know you have to go to God? And you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For, your, for wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He's going, there's no freedom. Your gospel freedom isn't being lived in by your people. There's no justice. Everything's perverted. Everybody's in strife. Is this not the nation we live in today? Is, is Habakkuk's eyes not the eyes that a believer should have today? How long? Why? See, this is what he is saying. And and he cries out to God. And we we face this in our world today. And I want to challenge us. I want to challenge. where, Where are we turning in our frustrations? Where are we turning when everything seems upside down? Where are we seeking answers? I want to recommend to us that we follow Habakkuk's example and we go to God. He is the only one with answers, even when we do not understand, even when we are frustrated with the way that he is ruling, even when we would not do it the same. See, Habakkuk seeks God with his questions. These two questions that all of us have when we look at the world around us, how long will this last moral confusion and spiritual decline and political corruption and human oppression and lying and cheating and hate and disunity and illness, how long? And then God, why does this even happen at all? Because if I had a magic wand, it would just all change immediately. 
And so why aren't you helping? And when we get this way, doubt will begin to creep in. Just like with the first man and woman, doubt will creep in. Should I be God? Should I take things into my own hands? Should I just seek my own answers? And almost every single one of us in this type of moment will either turn away from God or towards God. And here's what I want you to know. Doubt is not a bad thing. We often say here that doubt is like a poised foot that, you are, that is lifted in the air. You can either use it to step forward into deeper understanding in God, or you can use it to step backwards into a further and, and gain, going further and further and further away from what you are actually seeking. But doubt in and of itself is not bad. It is the poised foot. And I love that Habakkuk does not have a faith that he does not investigate. He struggles. He's honest. He he investigates. He lays it all out before God. And faith without investigation into the doubts that we have will not lead you to a faith that stands firm. Can I just say that? If you are just blindly going, God said it and I believe it, and you're not struggling with some of the things that are hard, then you don't really believe it. It's not transformative in you. And if it's not transformative in you, then it will eventually cause you to walk away from what is actually true. So do not have an investigated faith. If you don't doubt, and you don't doubt in the right way, you will find it hard to grow in what is true. But listen, as believers... We saw this in in the book of Philippians as Paul talks about joy beyond our circumstances, that we have this joy that surpasses everything in life and no circumstance can take it away. No victory can give us more. No loss can take away the joy that we have in him. The same is true of faith. We need faith that is real and that we can seek understanding in even when it's hard or else what are we putting our faith in and what is faith? If your faith shifts every time things get hard, it wasn't faith in anything that was worth faith in. And your faith will just shift with the winds. It will never have anything to hold, hold on to. It will not stand firm. And with all the shifting winds of culture, you will have something new to put your faith in. But faith is not based on fleeting things as, as we were created to have it. It wasn't created for us to put in our circumstances, but faith that is real is trustworthy and true, even in the hard suffering, even in the trial, even in difficult situations. This is real faith that we need. And listen to me, this is the real faith that you want. It's what you were created for, and it only comes when our faith is in God. We do need to know, because I know as soon as we think about suffering and difficulties and trials, a lot of us immediately go, okay, there's a problem of evil. My doubt is leading me to step away from God because I I, I struggle with believing in God because of evil. And if God is good and he's all powerful, then why doesn't he do something? Why is there evil in the world? And, and so I, I quickly just want to say that that's not a good reason if we are thinking people who think critically to disbelieve in God. Now, it happens all of the time, but it's not a good reason to do so. To believe that is actually to start with the premise or the psychological belief that will not allow you to conclude ever that there's something greater than you. 
It immediately wipes out God because you have no category for him. That may have something that may have a greater perspective than you, something that might have greater understanding than you. Essentially, you become God and you, are, you have the moral high ground over God. And if he wouldn't do what you want him to do, then he must not exist. And you will always in that reality put your faith in lesser things that will be shifting and changing. The truth is our moral outrage and the evil all around us, the injustice that we see, is actually a strong argument for God, not against God. That's why we started where we started with this, this passage this morning. To lean into him, to investigate him honestly, will give us a deeper understanding. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. You can't call the world evil if this is all that there is. It's just how the world is. But if it isn't the way that it should be, then there must be something else outside of it that gives us a sense that this isn't the way that things should be. See, what C.S. Lewis realized is that there is no God, there is no moral law, there's no made in his image. And we seek answers of morality where they can't be found. So whether we like it or not, our desire for morality, our desire for good, our desire for justice is all because we were created in the image of God. And it all points to God because of the reality that we have these desires. And the question then becomes not if God is loving and powerful, then why is there evil? But we can begin to come to the understanding that through deep reflection going to God, seeking him in prayer, studying who he is, that God is sovereign and he is all loving, yet suffering exists. Therefore, suffering must have a purpose for his glory and our ultimate good in a sinful world. This is the better way to think about it that will lead us to truth. Now, Habakkuk, he starts with God. He gets that. I know some of us don't start there. Habakkuk has already experienced that. He understands that God is the only place to turn. So that's where he starts, but he doesn't understand. And so I want to wrap this up in the next couple of minutes with helping us who have placed our faith in God know where to turn and where to go to put our faith in and what to trust when we don't understand what God is doing. Because when we look at the world around us, can we all just admit we don't understand? We don't know why. So Habakkuk starts here, and then he puts himself, get this, he puts himself intellectually and emotionally bare before God. He says, God, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I am feeling. This is what I see. This is what I know. He does not walk away from God, but he brings his real questions of not understanding to God. And this is the healthiest pattern for us. Listen, this, this morning I could give you apologetic example after apologetic example of why God exists. But the most loving and encouraging thing that I can do is to point you to the truth and to challenge you to lay your intellectual thoughts and concerns and your emotions and feelings honestly before God. To go to him to seek him, to do it together. And God answers us. We will find him when we do that. He answers Habakkuk. And it's really helpful in this really odd way. He doesn't answer him in the way that we would think. So let's look at this as we, as we close up. Look what God says. Behold, hey, take a look at this Habakkuk. Here it is, man. I'm gonna give you what you are asking. 
You are not going to understand it. It is going to confuse you. It is way beyond your understanding. But I'm glad that you are bringing your intellectual thought and your emotions to me. I am going to let you behind the curtain just for a second. But it is going to blow your mind. Look what he says. Look among the nations and see the wonder and be astounded for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. Now, we typically take that and go, yeah, let's give that to the youth group and let's say, hey, God's going to do something in your generation that if we told you, you would not even believe. Go do it. At a youth uh, pastor one time who did this, this was on our t-shirts, this verse, and all I could think was to go up to him and ask, have you ever read verse 6? Because I don't know if this is what we want. And I don't know if we're understanding this the way that we should. Because God says, I'm not idle. I am always at work. I am always answering your prayers. Sometimes it is beyond us. Sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes we wouldn't understand it even if we were told. Here's how he says he's going to answer their prayer. The Babylonians, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians are going to come and take you into captivity. That's how I'm going to answer your prayer. That's how I'm going to bring about Habakkuk says, I know you're not going to kill us all. I know the promises of God. I know the Messiah is coming through your people. So I know that you're going to protect us. And then God answers with, I'm going to let you go into captivity for a little bit. And Habakkuk goes, what? I don't understand. And God's like, yeah, I told you, you wouldn't. Habakkuk doesn't get it at all. He goes, I know you're not going to kill us. You're bringing salvation through your people, but you're going to allow us to rebel and take us into exile? So listen, he can't see what God is doing. He doesn't understand when God opens up the curtain. Believer, I need us to know that we are to lay down all that we think and all that we feel before God. We are to seek him in everything. And there are things that he is doing and is about that we would not understand, but is good. good. He is always working and he is always good. And he is always bringing about his ultimate plan. Now, All that he can see is his time and his struggles and his problem and his health and his current events. But God saw what he was going to bring about, truth to all people through the Messiah that would place their faith in him. And he is going to teach his people even through exile, we read in the book of Jeremiah, to follow God, to love God, to be about his plan, to be about his mission. Habakkuk desperately wants everything that God is doing, but God's just not doing it the way Habakkuk wants because there's a bigger plan that's happening. We know the story. We can read it through the Old Testament. We can look back and see that during the Babylonian exile, the people of God would not have repented and come to God if it were not that they were in exile. The Israelite people wouldn't have turned to him. They would have not spread throughout all the nations like God had called them to, to reveal God to all people. Now, God did free them under under King Nebuchadnezzar so that people like Ezra and Nehemiah could go back and rebuild the city of Israel and rebuild the temple so that they could worship God in a central location. But many stayed behind, like Esther and Nehemiah. They stayed in Babylon, and that empire was later taken over by the Persians. And they end up saving all of the Israelite people for a mistake, listen to me, that the Israelites made for not obeying God before Habakkuk was even born. 
So not only is God saying, Habakkuk, there is a plan that you would not understand in your future for what I am doing for all of eternity because my plan is eternal, but I'm also going to fix things that happened before you were even born that you don't even know about. All of this is coming together because my plan is so much bigger. And so Esther and Nehemiah end up saving God's people in Persia. And because of God's people being spread out all over the world, they end up putting synagogues all over in every nation. When the Greeks took over, they brought a common language to all the people. And then when the Romans came in and took over, they built the Roman roads. And during the Pax Romana, you could travel in peace. So now Jesus comes and is born of a virgin. He lives a perfect life on our behalf. He dies on the cross for our sin. He rises from the grave to overcome sin and death. He sends the spirit in his people. He sends the church out on mission. And where do they go? To all nations, to the synagogues, to tell them the Messiah has come that you have been studying. There's a common language for them to be able to express the gospel truth that people might receive. There are roads for them to travel, and the gospel explodes. Habakkuk gets what he wants. His frustration is, God, we're your people. What are you doing? And God goes, I'm doing something bigger than you can understand. I'm bringing about all that you want. Do you think Habakkuk saw that? No. Do you think that you see all that God is doing in you and through you and around you? No. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't seek justice where it is not. It doesn't mean that we don't try to bring the gospel everywhere that it is not. But God is doing something. He is redeeming everything that's broken. He is bringing salvation in darkness. Now Habakkuk, he doesn't fully get it yet. And maybe some of us are going, all right, all of that sounds good, but I don't know. And Habakkuk's there too. That's why in the last verses, verses 12 through 17, he turns to a different question. God, okay, you said how long? I said how long and you answered. I said why and you answered. But why then are you going to use the bad Babylonians to teach us who are better than them a lesson? And God's going to answer that next week. See, he's continuing to move forward, but he's continuing to lean into God. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to turn to the right place. I don't understand, but I'm going to stand on the watchtower. I'm going to wait for understanding from the Lord. I'm going to seek answers in the right place. I'm going to seek to deepen my faith in the right thing. I'm going to trust in the right God. I'm going to wait on the right Lord. Listen to me this morning. In the midst of sin... And brokenness in a chaotic world, what do we do? We take our intellectual thoughts and our emotional feelings, our stresses to the Lord. We seek Him, we wait on Him, we trust Him. And when we see all that we see, it should not lead us to despair or disgust, but it should lead us into trusting the one who is in control.